Welcome to the Docs Who Lift podcast, where we distill and simplify the complexities of a healthy lifestyle, exercise, medicine, and weight loss. We're excited to bring you a podcast that's a prescription for clinical practice, scientific recommendations, and just real life. This, this is the Docs Who Lift podcast. Welcome back to the Docs Who Lift podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Spencer Nadolski. I got my co-host here, Dr. Carl Nadolski Jr., hey. the greatest endocrinologist to walk the planet. <laughs> and we have another special guest. I'm very excited for this one because this guy has been my idol since med school. He doesn't even know. He doesn't even know I've been reading this blog <laughs> and actually got into a lot of the stuff from med school. I was going to surprise him. Uh, but his name, Dr. Stephen Guillenay, and he is an awesome neurobiologist. We're going to ask him a little bit about you know, kind of his background, how he got into this, and um, really pick his brain. On, and so, since we're more on the clinical side, he's more on the the real uh, you know, kind of bench research side, looking into this type of stuff. So, welcome, Dr. DNA. Thanks, Dr. Spencer, Dr. Carl. Appreciate <laughs> you having me on. I've been listening to your podcast lately and enjoying it. So glad to be here. You just like it because we cool. shill out the GLP ones. That's, yeah. that's what you. That's what oh, you we're enjoy. We're gonna be doing a lot of shilling today. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so hope, hope Novo's listening. We're yeah. a good company. And, and Lily and Lily. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. Lily now. See. Yep. Yeah. So my <laughs> first interactions with you, I, I, you know, I was kind of a lurker on, on your blog. Was with your whole what whole source? What is the whole source blog? Whole health source. Whole, yeah. whole health source. Um, I mean, I don't know when you started it, but I remember reading it. I think in med school. Um, when did you start that blog? Oh gosh, maybe twelve or thirteen years ago. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Because two thousand eight, I, uh, I think. Yeah. So I, I started med school in two thousand seven, two thousand. And so that's kind of you know I was always interested in obesity, you know, and getting into the social media world. You, you know, you see the experts, <laughs> and you were one of these experts, kind of trying to battle the the quackery back then. I don't know how you've lasted this long, but um, yeah. That's kind of how I became familiar with you. What is, and then what's your background? And you, you, you have a biochemistry um, bachelor's and you got into uh, neurobiology, uh, PhD. How did you get all into that? Yeah, so I think to some extent probably overlaps with uh, your background. I uh, just kind of always interested in fitness and health, um, yeah. always played sports and enjoyed, um, you know, being as, as strong and fit as possible and um, really trying to kind of um, increase my performance and well-being through physical activity, through diet, through meditation, other things like that. And um, I also was always really interested in science. For whatever reason, my brain just love science just like soaks it up and has since i was a kid i used to read science textbooks for fun when i was a kid awesome. that was just like what my brain was interested in <laughs> good we're, we're nerds so that's all right that's cool <laughs> and uh and neuroscience in particular was really interesting to me because not only is it the thing that you know the brain is more than anything else i would argue the thing that makes us who we are it's also one of the last remaining frontiers for human science. One of the last remaining great frontiers, I should say. Um, you know, like there's still things we can learn about the liver. There's still things we can learn about the kidney, but 
in terms of how much there is to learn, I think the brain is really the most mysterious organ we have left. And um, yeah, so I was always really interested in neuroscience and, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do with it exactly. I ended up getting, uh, um, as you said, bachelor's in biochem undergrad with the idea that that would serve as a foundation for uh, further work in neuroscience. And uh, I went to the University of Washington for my PhD and I was studying neurodegenerative disease at the time. Mm -hmm. I was really interested in, in epilepsy, neurodegenerative disease. Um, but I ended up doing research that I think wasn't as impactful as I wanted it to be. And um, around that time, I kind of, I guess my interest in fitness and health kind of drove me to be more interested in uh, obesity and body fatness. And, you know, obviously that was a huge issue at that time and still is today. And, um, and so I decided I wanted to do something more impactful and I wanted to do something related to obesity. And that actually worked out really well because obesity has a lot to do with neuroscience. And that's something we can talk about more later, but I'll just leave it at that for now. That's cool. And in fact, you know, it's, I think it's something that doesn't really occur intuitively to a lot of people that the brain would have a lot to do with body fatness. Uh, but the more you think about it, the more you read the literature, the more it makes sense. But a lot of this information wasn't really trickling down to the public. And that is what stimulated me in large part to write my blog. And then later my book, The Hungry Brain, just like all of the really important information that I was learning through the scientific community that was not making it to the public. Um, and that just kept snowballing as I did my postdoc also at the University of Washington with Mike Schwartz in, uh, uh, brain regulation of body fatness, particularly a part of the brain called the hypothalamus that we'll probably talk about. And, um, yeah, I just felt like the information wasn't reaching the public and that was kind of allowing the proliferation of all these harebrained ideas. <laughs> I mean, oh, harebrained ideas have a, a long and rich history. Um, harebrained ideas about obesity have a long and rich history. Um, so I feel like that was just kind of a continuation of the trends, but, you know, we were finally getting this information that was starting to explain what was going on. Not to say we understand everything, but you know, some of the basics and it wasn't really penetrating. So that's what really stimulated me to, to write the hungry brain. Um, and I think it has, it's, it hasn't been a blockbuster, but I think it's been somewhat influential. I think among people who are kind of into this subject, I think it's, it's a book that, that most people are familiar with. You would so. have sold more if you just said it was carbs <laughs> you would yeah, have sold or, or more. just, or, or just if all you had to do was fast. Yeah. Big, it's big it. farmer's just... fault. And all you hear is all you have to do. Don't listen to doctors. Here's the one <laughs> secret they don't want you to know. It's yeah. I, I, be I will, my next book. I will say it, it has made a bit a big impact because like, you know, this idea of obesity as a disease and that gets into the neurobiology and, and the biology that fights back when trying to lose weight and people kind of come back to this. It's a choice. You just need to make better choices and right. chicken breast and broccoli. And I think <laughs> that the fitness world kind of 
is into this whole blogging thing and you were kind of one of the bright lights out there, at least, you know, it was especially for me, you're the reason why I'm like, Hey, maybe, maybe sugar by itself, uh, isn't uh, obesogenic beyond its calorie. Uh -oh. kind of bring uh -oh. Spencer out these more well, so the super yeah, I'll finish food. what he's saying. <laughs> that, that's, hey, you, you, uh, Spencer paused. Up. What you I paused. You, you you ruined it. You ruined this I podcast. Ruined again? But, but basically, what I think it, you were it, no, trying it, to it, say it is it records me though. It does record me. <laughs> oh, it does. So okay. It's, okay. All right. Well, anyway, I didn't hear what you just anyway, said. You were we'll a bright, you're a bright light. You're a bright light in, <laughs> right. in teaching people the the real evidence beyond these big time quacks um, that are out there. So uh, that that's that's why I've, I'm so glad you're here. And the hungry brain did a good job at actually bringing that out even further to people that otherwise didn't understand how the brain was involved. So how, yeah, tell us more about like, yeah, maybe tell us more about how the brain is involved with obesity. What do you think is kind of, what's, maybe, what's, maybe, what's the, maybe the cliff notes of the hungry brain and, uh, you know, hopefully that it'll encourage other people to go out there and read it rather than some of the books we might talk to you about that you've reviewed on your red pen reviews in the next episode. So um, I would just assume my patients read, if they want to read science, I'd rather read something that's very evidence-based and neutral like yours rather than just trying to sell stuff, which is what, unfortunately, so many people get caught up into. Yeah, so um, I think a good place to start is at a high level, just thinking about what does the brain have to do with body fatness at all? Yeah. Because um, I think it's not necessarily an intuitive concept to people. And, but I think if you start to think about it a little bit, it becomes pretty obvious. And the first thing to recognize is the brain is the organ that generates behavior. So any voluntary movement that your body does is generated by brain activity. So how much you eat, what you eat, um, those are things, those are behaviors that are generated by the brain, how you're moving your body, how much you're moving your body. Uh, how much you're sleeping, how stressed you feel, those are all outputs of the brain. And I think, you know, it would be hard to argue that those things are not relevant to body fatness, right? And so there's that level of it that I think is is pretty obvious once you start to think about it. And, you know, like, if you you know, everybody's brain is, is constructed a little differently. So if you have someone whose brain just for whatever reason, if you, if you put the same brain, if you put their brain on, a, on the same body as somebody else, like they're still going to experience different levels of hunger because of their different brains. Even if the body is the same, they're still going to experience different levels of craving towards certain foods or whatever, just because of how their brains are put together. And uh, a lot of that has to do with genetics, which we can talk about. And then, so, so there's that, the behavior aspect. But the other thing that I think is less intuitive that a lot of people don't know about is that there's actually a regulatory system for body fatness in the body. And that regulatory system is located in the brain, in a part of the brain called the hypothalamus. The hypothalamus specializes in physiological regulation. That's one of the things it specializes in. It regulates your blood pressure. It regulates your body temperature. Um, it regulates a bunch of different things in the body. And one of the things it regulates is your body fat. And so basically, as far as we can tell, the brain is kind of 
the primary organ that is implicated in determining your body fat level. And so that is why my book, the hungry, <clears throat> the hungry brain centers around the brain and trying to understand our eating behavior and in trying to understand our, our body fatness. So it's not and, a pancreas. <laughs> well, interestingly, the brain also regulates the pancreas. Yeah. Um, not to say that it's the only thing regulating it, but it's a thing that right. regulates has, it. Right, has yeah. an effect. Yeah. yeah. And um, so, yeah, and then the, the thesis of the book is that the, uh, the thing that leads us astray are these non-conscious brain regions that push our eating behavior to, that push us to overconsume despite our best intentions. And so if you think about this, I think it, a case can be made for it pretty intuitively. Like, you know, where does hunger come from? Did you choose to feel hungry right. or is that just something that arose from the activity of brain regions that you have virtually no control over? Did you choose to experience a craving when you smelled the brownies coming out of the oven? <laughs> yeah. No. You know, that, that is something that arose as a result of brain activity that you have little awareness of and little control over. You experience, I mean, you can control it indirectly. You could not bake the brownies, but you can't really <laughs> control your craving response to that sensory cue of the smell of the brownies, could, right? Could you explain the difference between, it, like, the overarching theme is appetite. You have homeostatic hunger, and then you have cravings. Could you, uh, you're a neurobiologist. My brother and I try to explain it, this, but like yeah, it'd be you, good to hear what you. What you yeah, you just throw the words out of my mouth. I was going to say the same thing, and and then do you get into the other sort of nuances of what these these meanings are? Because some of the clinical science actually starts divvying these up. Are you hungry? What's your appetite score? Craving yeah. the lack of satiety, um, binge eating disorders type stuff. So all sorts of different subjective uh, descriptions of how people. Uh, food seek or energy intake seek, I guess I could say. So yeah. What are your, from your perspective? Yeah. So, um, I think we can, um, eating is, is complex, right? It's a very complex behavior and there are a lot of different things that can impact it both neurobiologically and environmentally, right? Like we can eat for a lot of different reasons. <clears throat> um, but I think two of the big ones are, well, really all the reasons can be divided into two broad categories, homeostatic and non-homeostatic. So homeostatic is a technical term, which basically in this context means stuff relating to your body trying to maintain its energy status. So if your brain perceives that you, there's not a lot of food material in your gut or that your body fat is low, you, your brain will send signals that, you know, make you motivated to, to eat food. Um, so that would be a, a type of homeostatic eating. If you feel hungry and you actually kind of, your body is seeking energy and that's why you're eating. Like it doesn't so matter what the type of food is. It's just like, I just need energy. Yes. Right. Okay. Yes. It makes little, well, I shouldn't say it doesn't matter at all because your brain will be biased toward more calorie dense foods, Okay, but it's really, it's an energy seeking response. It's not a 
I want this specific food yes, type of response. Thanks for explaining. Um, yeah. And on the other side, you have non-homeostatic eating, which covers a whole range of things. You know, it could just be like you're at a party and you're feeling anxious. So you are stuffing chips in your mouth um, or, you know, you're like you feel like drinking a beer because you want the buzz. Um, but I think a, a big one and I think one that's going to that one that is central to what we care about here is reward based eating. So that is eating where um, it's a motivational state that is more about um, the food having desirable properties than it is about the energy in the food. So mm -hmm. like if you just to give you an example to encapsulate this, like probably most people have had the experience of you, let's say you brought a lunch to work, like you made your own lunch, it's super healthy. Uh, you know, it's, it's consistent with your own conscious long-term goals about what you want to eat and your, your health and stuff. Uh, you eat this lunch, you, you're totally satisfied. Like you don't feel like you need to eat anything else. You're good. And then you walk into a conference room or a, a break room or something and there's like a pizza sitting there mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> and all of a sudden you see the pizza and you smell it and you're like, dang, I really want some pizza right now. You weren't hungry a moment ago. Mm. You felt totally satisfied, but all of a sudden you have this urge, this strong urge to eat pizza and you'll sit down. I will sit down. <laughs> I was, I was going to say, eat, I, don't, like, I don't know what you're talking about. This has never happened to me. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, one, no, one, no one knows what I'm talking about here. But, you know, personal experience, but I know a lot of other people experience this, is you could sit down and easily consume hundreds of additional calories when just a moment ago you had no desire at all. And that's not because your body needs energy and same for eating dessert. You know, mm -hmm. you have a, a meal mm -hmm. of, let's say, you know, steak, potatoes and salad. You're good. If somebody brought out more potatoes at the end of the meal, you're not going to eat any more potatoes. You're full. But then they bring out the dessert and you're like, mm hmm. Yeah, I'll eat, you know, <laughs> 400 calories of ice cream and, and brownies or whatever. At least. Um, uh, yeah, at and least. so. You, that those things can't be explained by uh, body needing energy or even thinking it needs energy. Like mm -hmm. your body understands that it's already had enough. Your brain understands that. But for whatever reason, this food has highly desirable properties that stimulate the reward regions of your brain that cause you to want to consume more. And so that's, there's, there's like the, kind of pure hunger side, which is the homeostatic. And then there's kind of the craving side, which is the reward driven eating. And, um, that reward driven eating typically is associated with calorie dense foods that are a combination of carbohydrate and fat and are just like craveable and delicious mm -hmm. to us. <laughs> yeah. Potato and chips. They, Potato, yeah. like I chips, potato chips, chips yes. and and baked goods, you know, ice cream, <laughs> mm -hmm. sweets. Yeah, they overwhelm our our ability to deal with it. That's kind of how I explain it to patients. Yeah, I make memes about this. It's, it's just it's <laughs> classic. Like, yeah, like you said, you, yogurt and fruit for breakfast. You got a salad with whatever, chicken for lunch, and then some fish and vegetables and 
who knows, lentils, I don't know, for dinner. And then all of a sudden you got a sleeve of Oreos, a whole thing of you know, whatever, uh, ice cream ice bars cream. and, and yeah, it, and, and people laugh and they're like, I feel attacked, but it's, I don't know. But I it's, feel it's this. true. It's, it's biology. Yeah. I feel it. I feel and it. Then of course, yeah. then, you, then you throw in our cannabinoid system and, uh, and all the legalized cannabis and that, then you got a whole nother thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I think it makes perfect sense. Like from an evolutionary perspective is there were certain nutrients and combination, certain food properties, let's say that promoted the survival and reproduction of our ancestors. And your brain and your body are hardwired to be motivated by those properties. And so when somebody puts a food in front of you, that's like a optimized maxed out version of all the properties that the brain inherently values, your brain is going to be like, yeah, you need to go for this right now. And that's what we're experiencing through those, those cravings and those, those strong reward uh, related eating drives. So in terms of obesity, um, do you feel like, I mean, your book is literally called The Hungry Brain. So the brain is having us eat more calories than, than we burn. And that's, is that kind of the underlying, I mean, I read the book, but it, that, that was that your point? Is that the, the brain is like our, the big driver for obesity? Yeah. So it's this idea that, so we were, we were talking earlier about um, these non-conscious brain regions that are pushing us to overconsume. So um, one of the things I talk about in the book is that we have all of these different brain functions that we're not really aware of in our daily life, but that really have a big impact on our, on our food intake. Like most people don't think about the fact that when they experience hunger, there's a whole network of brain processes that underlies that when they experience a craving, there's a whole network of brain, you know, circuits that underlie that. And, um, and so there are all these, I kind of think about it as different brain modules, different brain functions that are being kind of thrown out of whack or hijacked by the modern food environment or the modern environment in general. So uh, our homeostatic systems the, that regulate our energy homeostasis are being thrown out of whack by food that's very calorie dense and palatable. So you don't experience as much fullness, as much satiety per calorie from eating those foods. Our um, reward systems are being pushed too hard by these extremely seductive foods. Um, it's a great term. And yeah, and et cetera. So essentially there are uh, these systems, these non-conscious brain systems that evolved to support the survival and reproduction of our ancestors. And they worked really well in that context, but they're just being pushed in the wrong direction by the modern food environment. And for whatever reason, all these systems are kind of getting pushed in the same direction. And that's the direction of making us fatter. Yeah. And despite having all that body fat, we don't stop. Yeah. And I think that gets at a really interesting aspect of this, which is that uh, this system that regulates our body fatness, which we can call the lipostat, is uh, it, it re-regulates in people with obesity to a higher level. So basically that obese state is the new normal and that system is now defending the higher level of body fatness against changes. And that's, that's why 
that's a major reason, maybe even the main reason why it's so hard to lose weight sustainably. You have this regulatory system. It, it's like turning the thermostat up in your house. Mm -hmm. If you turn the thermostat up to 90 degrees Fahrenheit, it's going to be hot in your house. And you can try to fight that by opening the windows, but you're still going to have the system that's pushing heat into your house and trying to re-regulate to that higher level. And that's how it is for a person with obesity. They, their regulatory system is regulating at the higher level. They can try to lose weight, but the system is going to keep fighting it because it's still regulating around that, that higher level. And so, um, and you see this, we, there's so much evidence for this in, in diet trials. Like you put people on a weight loss diet, they'll get maximum weight loss at something around like six months and then they'll regain much, most of that loss. So if you take two people, like let's say one person starts with obesity and loses fat until they're just in the overweight range. Then you take a different person whose normal weight is in the overweight range and you just look at their weight trajectories over time, that person who formerly had obesity is going to be much more susceptible to weight gain as time goes on than the person whose normal weight is, is just overweight. So those two people are not the same. They have different lipostats that are regulating at a different level. And I think if we don't understand that, then we don't really understand obesity. That's, that's really a, a hallmark, a cardinal feature of obesity, that regulatory change that causes the defense of elevated body fatness. Do you think it's genetic in that it just, we put ourselves in these environments and we end up where we are, or do you think it changes over time where there becomes a dysregulation because of the obesity? Um, I mean, I think susceptibility certainly has a genetic component. I think there's no doubt about that. I think we can see in our daily lives that some people are much more resistant to gaining fat than others. You know, there are people who really watch what they eat and still continue to gain weight while there are other people who seem to be able to eat whatever they want and will, and will never gain weight. Yeah. And we certainly know um, that from twin studies too, where, where yes. we're raised apart and they seem to somehow always have the same, uh, you know, relatively similar body composition, despite having completely different lifestyles. Yeah, it is interesting. Correct. Correct. So yeah, if you look at, yeah. So I was describing the intuitive case, but there's a lot of evidence to support this as well, which you're alluding to. Um, the twin studies suggest that about 75% of differences in body fatness between individuals is genetics. Yeah. There's some uh, debate about that. It depends on the method you look at. Mm -hmm. um, some people argue it's more like 40%, but whether it's 40 or 75, I think like either way, it's strong, very strongly <laughs> it's influenced strong. yeah. by genetics. And, and it doesn't necessarily change what we do with our patients. Right. Between you educating clinicians and us dealing with our patients, we know it's part of the problem and we got to individualize and, and find a way and, you know, and maybe consider medications and surgeries that we'll ultimately get to. Um, I do, I do want to make sure that uh, get your thoughts on some of the peripheral control of the brain since, uh, you know, your fo focus is obviously the central nervous system, but it's uh, part of that system is actually the peripheral signals. 
that includes Spencer's yeah. favorite insulin. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, you know, the brain is an organ that receives it's high level. Its job is to receive signals from everywhere it can from inside the body, from outside the body and use that information to generate appropriate physiological and behavioral outputs for the survival and reproduction of the organism. And so the brain is integrating an enormous amount of information into all of its decisions. And uh, for energy regulation and appetite, yeah, it is getting a lot of information from the periphery. Some of it is through hormones like leptin, which tells the brain how much fat is on the body. Some of it is uh, through gut hormones that relate to um, short-term energy regulation, things that are released as you eat food, like GLP-1 is, is one, and GIP, amylin, glucagon, ghrelin, etc. There's a bunch of these things. And then there's a, there are a lot of neural signals that are coming up as well, especially through the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve is a major information highway between the brain and the gut. And, and obviously, you know, energy regulation from the brain, brain is very interested in what's happening in the gut as it's trying to regulate the body's energy status, right? That's a, a highly relevant part of the body that it wants to know all about. And so it gets a lot of information about how much you've consumed and uh, what is the chemical composition of what you've consumed. And all of that gets integrated in both the short and long-term regulation of, of the body's energy status. So what, I mean, you, in your book, you talk about what to do. I mean, kind of the foods to focus on, but ultimately, even if you try to focus on those foods, it can be really hard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, and this gets back to this conflict between non-conscious and conscious brain regions. Like we know what we want to do, right? Like nobody wants to overconsume calories and gain weight over time. Right. Nobody wants to eat unhealthy food and develop diabetes and cardiovascular disease. So why do we do those things? Like nobody thinks it's healthy to <sighs> drink Coca-Cola and smoke cigarettes. Nobody thinks it's healthy to like eat brownies and donuts and pizza. Why do we do those things? It's because of these non-conscious brain regions that are generating these eating drives that are inconsistent with our conscious, rational desires and motivations. And a lot of times those non-conscious brain regions win. They're not really designed to be overridden yeah. day after day after day. Yeah, I would say most of the time. That's why we're struggling. That's what I yeah. tell you know, we, I, I, I feel like Spencer and I probably condense this conversation into about one minute when we talk to patients and we say, look, it's easier said than done. We have a complex energy regulation system with the headquarters in our brain, peripheral signals, communicating our fat cells and our energy intake. And then everyone's different as different monkey wrenches thrown into it. And it's hard. And so then we talk about, well, what are we going to do about it? And we talk about some of the dietary things that I think you get into and, you know, obviously personalizing it and, uh, you know, cutting down on refined processed foods to automatically reduce the energy intake, but we still have to deal with our <laughs> hyper palatable, yummy environment that has lots of calories. But we happen to have 
some medications and some really cool new medications um, that I think play a, obviously play a role into what you're talking about um, that maybe you have even questions on. Um, yeah, it's, you, if there's a bigger shill for GLP-1 uh, medicines, it might than than us. It might be Doctor Yuna. <laughs> <laughs> it might be. So what? Are, yeah, what are your thoughts on these new medicines that kind of work up in the hungry brain yeah. that help out? And and we've talked about these in some recent podcasts for anybody listening. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, and I enjoyed I enjoyed hearing that from the the clinical perspective, which is something that I'm not as knowledgeable about. Um, yeah, I mean, let, let me just start by saying um, that I have no conflicts of interest related <laughs> to these drugs or any weight loss drug, uh, no financial conflicts or other types of conflicts at all. So even though I'm a shill, I'm a yeah. shill because yeah. I like You're these drugs. You're a shill for the science. Because... Same with us for now. <laughs> yeah, for now, for yeah. now. Until, until, they, <laughs> until, until, until they... Yeah. Anyways, <laughs> I'm. Uh, yeah, it's not because they're paying for my 2006 uh, Toyota Sienna minivan <laughs> that I'm favorable. Anyway, um, yeah. So I, I could talk about this from so many angles, but I know we're trying to keep it concise here. Um, let's just say I'll start off by saying that there's a long history of weight loss drugs out there, and for most of it, it was haphazard and it was serendipity discovering these drugs. Like one of the first weight loss drugs that was discovered was dinitrophenol. That was a high explosive used in <laughs> World War One that people just figured out caused weight loss. It uh, is a mitochondrial uncoupler, increases energy expenditure, and people would take it, lose some weight, and some of them would cook themselves from the inside out. <laughs> And, uh, and then after that, most of the drugs that were discovered were repurposed psychiatric drugs, which is pretty interesting. Like psychiatric drugs often cause weight gain or weight loss. And people said, Hey, let's take these psychiatric drugs that just happened to cause weight loss and let's, you know, combine them and, uh, and figure out the ones that are most effective, put them together and, and give them to people. Obviously that, you know, it's not hard to think of problems with that approach, like they have psychiatric side effects. <laughs> and so, you know, you're looking at things like, uh, topiramate and, uh, bupropion and, uh, fenfluramine and fentermine. That's, that's kind of where these drugs came from. So it was kind of this haphazard serendipitous drug discovery process until recently when we started gaining enough knowledge where we could say like, how do these systems work and can we rationally design drugs that are impacting these systems? And so you had this research coming from uh, Daniel Drucker at the University of Toronto and, and some others in Europe uh, that discovered this hormone GLP-1 that initially was characterized because it increases insulin secretion, uh, glucose dependent insulin secretion. So basically, um, when you eat a meal and your blood sugar starts to go up, this hormone tells your pancreas to start secreting more insulin to help cover that glucose. Uh, but it also was found to reduce food intake. And then further work, they found that they could cause weight loss with this. And then pharma got their hands on it and started tweaking it, primarily Novo Nordisk. And they came up with these great, um, 
GLP-1 receptor agonist drugs. And these are basically just GLP hormone, GLP-1 hormone that has been modified to have a really long half-life and has a couple of other small modifications, but it's just a protein modified hormone. And, um, and yeah, so I think we're, and you know, it's really effective as you know. And so we're in a totally new era now where all of this research, this basic research into obesity biology is bearing fruit in, in the clinic, which to me is, is, is really exciting and really cool. And is a new, really a new page in, in both the science and the, the medicine of, of obesity. So thinking about the hungry brain, did they work on that homeostatic change? Yeah. So I think this is, this is a great question. So I happen to believe that the most effective weight loss drugs act both on the energy homeostasis systems and on the reward systems. And that's what you tend to see with some of these um, repurposed psychiatric drugs is you'll have, especially when you have these combinations, you'll have one drug that's mostly hitting the reward side and one drug that's mostly hitting like appetite, just straight up appetite. And um, I think we're seeing pretty strong signals from the GLP-1 receptor agonists that they're hitting both of those. Mm -hmm. So there seems to be a pretty strong, you know, if, if we just look at, let's say survey results, if you just ask people who are taking these drugs, like what their experience is, they experience a reduction in hunger and they experience a reduction in cravings. Mm -hmm. And those are both really, really marked like large reductions in hunger and cravings. And if you put food in front of them at a, like a experimental buffet, they'll eat like 25% less than they will if they're not on uh, semaglutide. And uh, if we look at the neuroscience of it, and this really comes to the, this question of what exactly it's doing and how it works, which I think is, is really interesting. Um, if you look at the neuroscience work that's been done on it, there's been, there's still some controversy, but there's been quite a bit of work that's been done on where exactly this drug acts in the brain. Mostly it's been done in rodents, but they're, you know, they're, these brain regions are highly conserved. These are really ancient brain regions that basically work the same in mice as they do in humans. And uh, work that was done at Nova Nordisk by uh, Lata, Bier, Nudsen and colleagues, they took semaglutide and they put a little fluorescent tag on it hmm. and they injected it into mice to see where in the brain it goes. And what they saw is it goes really to very specific parts of the brain. One of them is the hypothalamus, which is implicated in long-term energy regulation. One of them is the brainstem and particularly the area postrema, which is regulated in short-term meal-to-meal energy regulation. And those are really like the two key areas that I think they were kind of expecting or hoping to see mm -hmm. it go to. Um, and then a few other places. And interestingly, it really like seems to primarily hit areas related to energy regulation more than reward. Like if you look at the places where it's going, there's only one that really stands out 
for reward. And that is the um, lateral septal nucleus. And I think that might actually be the gateway to um, the reward effects that we're seeing. So if you look at um, the, the research that's been done, these drugs, they reduce like straight up reward mediated behaviors like cocaine, self-administration, like things that have nothing to do with food. Yeah. Like animals will consume less alcohol, they'll mm. consume less cocaine, they'll consume other things that are really just straight up like dopamine mediated reward. Man, these animals and are having a good time. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Some of them. <laughs> and you talk to people like David Macklin and you guys who are, you know, clinicians and talking with patients a lot. And people will say that they have reductions in reward driven behaviors that are not related to food as well. So like, David Macklin told me people would tell him that they're shopping on Amazon less. Uh, they're drinking less alcohol, yeah. doing fewer other types of, of drugs, recreational drugs. So, yeah. um, so anyway, if, if you look at the, um, interestingly, there's been this other work from uh, Randy Seeley and colleagues where they knock the receptor out of different parts of the mouse brain. So this is really the most definitive type of experiment to see where that mechanism of action is coming from. Like, where is the drug really landing initially that's causing the effects? And it looks like mostly in the brainstem in terms of its weight loss effects. It's first of all, it's, it's in the brain. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that much is pretty well established is that it's mostly or entirely mediated by activity in the brain, which I know there's been some pushback on <laughs> yeah, that. Oh gosh. Yeah. We don't, have, we don't even have to get into that, but yeah, we have to do a whole other podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For right. anybody listening. But, but the data are clear This they work to reduce food intake. Yeah. They're helping you talk about in the brain. Yes. Yes. A variety of potential central nervous system mechanisms and receptors. And it seems to be mostly the brainstem. Okay. That seems to be mostly the place where those receptors are getting hit. For the reward you're um, talking about. And for the weight loss effect. Homeostatic altogether. For the weight loss effect in, in rodents. In rodents, um, okay. Yeah. But, you know, the brainstem is complicated. There's a lot of stuff that's downstream of the brainstem. So I don't think that necessarily rules out... Uh, the reward effects like it could be that these reward effects are downstream of these these brainstem effects so uh, just for example fentramine extremely strong uh you know symp sympathomimetic appetite suppressant that doesn't seem to have the same reward effects. So they added topiramate right. with it. It kind of helps a little that bit helps with, the with that. Cravings and addiction. I have of. never seen, and topiramate can be used for binge eating disorder. Fine, it's off-label technically. Um, people use SSRIs and Vyvanse yeah. and, and other things. Yeah. But I've never seen the effect of semaglutide and terzepatide now on the effects of this reward. That What you're describing makes sense the drugs that are out there right now for this reward uh, pathway. Yeah. Alcohol. They're like, I don't crave alcohol anymore. I don't yeah. feel like I need to smoke. I just, I just feel normal. I don't yeah. have that intense that's, craving. That's the key. I mean, I just shared that again. We share this all the time. Patients yeah. say, Oh, 
wow, I'm the, the one I shared the other day was I feel like myself again. A couple of years ago, I had a, a very he was an NIH pediatric endocrinology science, scientist, and he said, oh, this is what it's like to be normal. Um, he was actually on a combination of things. He had pretty severe obesity. But, um, you know, I, a lot of the clinical studies talk about, you know, really it, it focuses the GLP description as a really uh, improved satiety mechanism in addition to some of the, um, you know, the reward or, you know, I'm, I'm looking at one right now where it, they, they specifically looked at, um, you know, desirable food cues and how there's like such a dramatic reduction in those. So they have improved satiety, reduction in the food cues. We have the um, some of the stuff you're talking about with the knockout, you know, a lot of the rodent data to support it and also some functional MRI data um, mm -hmm. to, to help out with that stuff. And so ultimately resulting in patients being able to essentially stick to a really good dietary effort. Well, also people, the naysayers will say it's just because of the nausea. I remember when exenatide oh, biata came out. <laughs> that's that's just not true. Definitely biata, based upon the studies. Yeah, yeah. Right, exenatide comes out and people are losing weight. This is back in the right when I was in med school, two thousand seven, and it, you know I remember you, Casey. You would always get in, in fights with your attendings, and I would just be the lowly <laughs> little med student just hanging out. And like, it's just because of the nausea. But well, now oh, we have these drugs yeah. that God, I forgot are about that. Way more powerful for weight loss. Mm -hmm. And they'll still say it's just because they're nauseous. I have, yes, there's nausea in the beginning. It's very common. It resolves over time and, and then they don't have nausea anymore. And yet yeah. they still feel this intense yeah. and decrease. To, to be fair, their... I mean, the, in the clinical studies, it's not like everyone gets nausea. About a third of people right. get some nausea. And then the people who don't get nausea do just as well, if not better. So it's, so it's not yeah. the nausea. Yeah. It's That's exactly what I was going to say. What you're is, talking is... about. The nausea is not correlated with, mm -mm. with weight right. loss. I think that's the strongest argument that it's yeah. not the driver. It doesn't matter whether you experience that nausea or not in terms of your weight loss results. Yeah. I have some patients who are oh. extremely nauseous and they, in some of them don't respond as well as some of the other people that don't have nausea. So you're right. Um, I've, I've seen that too. Yeah. I'm like, how are you, if you can't eat, how are you still, <laughs> it's, it's, but they find ways to eat stuff. That's it's like the pregnancy nausea, right? Your yeah. calorie intake goes up, but but yeah, feeling nauseous half the time. Yeah, doesn't correlate. <laughs> um, yeah, and I think this is kind of interesting from the neuroscience perspective too, because you have these. Uh, there are these networks of neurons in the brainstem that regulate your uh, like uh, your satiety and your hunger. More probably more satiety than hunger, and uh, they. It's kind of a continuum. It's like a mm -hmm. spectrum from not feeling full at all to being like gut burstingly nauseous. <laughs> like that that's the spectrum of states that those neurons can, yeah. can generate in terms of what your experience feels like. And the, where they are on that spectrum depends a lot on the, the feedback that they're getting from these gut signals. Right. And GLP one is one of these gut signals. And so, you're like basically these hormones and neural signals going up to the brain, they build up and that signal builds up in your brainstem until you're full enough that you don't want to eat anymore. And so basically this is, appears to be like putting one of those signals on, you know, warp speed to like really ramping up that one signal telling your brain that uh, you actually are really full. And if you push that to an extreme, like that's what these drugs do. This is a, 
way over physiological levels of GLP-1 signaling, right? This is much more than you would naturally get. So mm -hmm. it makes sense, I think, that initially you're pushing that system so hard that you would get nausea in some people because you're, you're pushing those satiety circuits to their extreme. Um, but obviously that is something that typically resolves over time in most people. So the circuits will kind of adapt. Yeah. Where, where do you think we go from here? I mean, I know, you know, we talk about the different drugs they're creating, but do you think that we just keep going down this pathway of figuring out these neurobiological signals and press the gas pedal on them? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I mean, I think that is the way to go. That's what's been productive so far. And that's what the science suggests we should do. I mean, in terms of like medical therapy, yeah. I, I assume that's what you're asking yeah. about. Um, I think, you know, that you could consider alternatives in terms of like societal ways to address obesity. But in terms of medical therapy, yeah, um, I think that is the way to go. And, you know, you look in mice, we know enough about the brain circuits that regulate eating behavior in mice. You can, you can play a mouse like a marionette. <laughs> it's eating behavior at this point. Like you can turn it on you can make them stuff themselves like until they practically bust their guts, but with the flip of a switch yeah. by activating the right neurons, we've, you can, we've, we've seen those videos that, that, cause I, I don't do any of the bench research. We go to, I, I'll mosey in at the obesity week. Yeah. Like, Let me see what these researchers are talking about. And they'll do this thing where they, you know, have the little light that's into their brain and they'll flip yeah, the switch and they, genetics. they eat oh, it's voraciously <laughs> and then they flip it off and then they just yes. stop and we were very entertained and by I was just like what yes. is this? <laughs> I was like this is so cool <laughs> yeah I've done so, I've done one of those experiments AGRP neurons yeah, yeah. you activate those with uh, optogenetics you literally you flip a switch and they're stuffing their faces it is bizarre and then you turn it off and they're done I mean, yeah it's crazy I mean those are the hunger neurons. That's yeah. why, like you turn that on and you are in a state of hunger, you turn it off and you are not in a state of hunger. That's so cool. That, those are like the central node in that pathway. And, um, and then there's a, you know, you can stop eating behavior completely. So like we have not to say that we understand how all of it works, but we understand it well enough to have a, great degree of control over the system in uh, experiments in mice. And all these circuits are the same in humans, like the same neurons, the same neurotransmitters hooked up in the same way. You can see them in the human brain. We know they are operating in the same way. You know, people who lack leptin have extreme obesity, just like mice. Uh, people who lack uh, melanocortin receptors, same thing. That's in the same, those same pathways. So, um, you know, the difference between mice and humans is we can do, like we consider it ethical to do more invasive types of things to mice. So it's not that this wouldn't work in humans. It's just that we don't consider it ethically acceptable you, you, given our current technology, but that could easily change. I mean, as technology progresses, it's very conceivable that we could gain much more fine-grained uh, and robust control over these circuits to a point where GLP-1 receptor 
agonists are going to look like stone age technology. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Well, I think, <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, we did our, we did our podcast a few weeks ago on the terzepatide, which is a, is a single molecule working on both GLP one and GIP that you mentioned. And then there's going to be more that we're going to keep yeah. up with over time. Add amylin and, and they add yeah. glucagon. And, and, then, and uh, yeah. And I, and I will say, you know, talking about the um, ethics of, of doing it on the mice, the mice don't agree with that. And uh, <laughs> they would just assume we do it on ourselves, I think. So <laughs> we're just going to put a little microchips in our brain. Speaking of food, you know, on uh, Netflix, there's a, there's a show about, um, it's not the secret life of pets. It's like this, you know, something about the life of pets. And there, there's um, uh, a university study that taught mice how to drive by using the food reward. You know, that's how you, we do everything with animals, right? And over, you know, a couple of months or whatever, they taught mice to drive. Isn't it like Completely. Stuart Little? That's how Stuart Little started. Is that how? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, anyways, I thought that was great. That's Amazing. Great. It out. I it's, wonder it's if really could... funny. It's it's but it's a, it's fascinating. I mean, they literally were driving cars to where they had huh. to go to get the food. That's Little how you guys we can teach them how to do taxes. Yeah, they should. <laughs> Probably. That's how, Amazing. That's how my brother got learned in med school. They just gave him free pizza <laughs> yeah, every every lesson. Is, it's not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, th thanks right. for hopping on here. I mean, I think we pretty much covered the neurobiology of, of obesity yeah. and, and your work. Um, and then these, you know, tools to kind of fight against it. Any closing remarks that you have? Um, I would say that, you know, we're at a very special time in history for uh, medical management of obesity and obesity research. And I think it's for me a time of great optimism we we've never been in such a position of uh control over over these things we've never had the kind of tools that we have and i think that's really cool and i've, I've been trying to kind of trumpet this to the mm -hmm. public as a real breakthrough and and pivot point um and so i think you know, for me, I just like to stand back and, and recognize how important this moment is. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool as, as clinicians too. We didn't have these; we just didn't have these tools, and now it's like, wow, it's just amazing to see. So, yeah, thank you so much for uh, coming on. Uh, here's our outro. This podcast is for entertainment and education and information purposes only. Remember, the physicians on this podcast are not your physician. It should not be considered professional or personalized medical advice. It should not be used to replace speaking with your physician or medical professional to discuss your specific health concerns. The topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose or treat any condition. As a result, we are not responsible for any unwanted medical outcomes. The views and opinions discussed are of those of the host only and do not represent those of any other entities. Thank <laughs> you.